This is the Career Planning Show, hosted by Employment Services Advisor Alex Rashkanu. Welcome to this edition of the Career Planning Show. The Career Planning Show is a podcast that aims to help you launch and grow a fulfilling career. And for the first time, uh, we are conducting uh, the podcast episode in uh, video format as well. So we'll be releasing it on YouTube and other video channels. Our guest today is Curtis Carmichael. Curtis is an award-winning social entrepreneur, technologist, STEM and hip-hop teacher, computer programmer, and a former director of a Code Ninjas franchise. Curtis holds a bachelor's in physical and health education from Queen's University and a bachelor of education in STEM education from Ontario Tech University. He's a Team Canada duathlete for the 2021 Multisport World Championships and his Cross Canada Cycling Tour Ride for Promise raised funds for Toronto community housing after school programs and was featured in an award-winning documentary. As a self-taught computer programmer, Curtis built his own mobile app that brings his, critic, his critically acclaimed memoir to life by giving readers access to hidden content, which can be activated by holding your phone over photos throughout the book that he recently published. The memoir is called Butterfly, Butterflies in the Trenches, and I really enjoyed reading it. Curtis, let's dive right in. Um, what inspired you to write your memoir, Butterflies in the Trenches? Yeah, there's, there's a couple things. I'll be quick. Uh, the, the first thing is that uh, there's something called biomimicry. I'm really into nature and, uh, and STEM as a whole, but uh, biomimicry is a concept where you use nature as inspiration to uh, solve a problem um, in a regenerative way. And when I thought of my community, I thought of my neighborhoods sometimes feels like a war zone with all the realities that go on because I grew up in a Toronto community housing in a low-income community um, in poverty. But at the same time, it's some of the most beautiful and the most innovative place I've ever been in. So I had to figure out how do you merge the two? And I've always been into butterflies. And what I realized when you look up butterflies is uh, what's essential to their survival is uh, getting nutrients and minerals from the mud. Hmm. So I thought it was kind of beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful uh, parts of our, our, our na nature ecosystem hmm. actually needs the mud to survive. And that's when I thought of war zone with the most innovative, most beautiful place in the world butterflies in the trenches so that's behind the title um what inspired me to write um was when i was a kid i was looking for a book about uh breaking the cycle of poverty and, mm. and empowering young people to do the same and i couldn't find it as a young kid uh, when i became a teenager when i became a, a, a student in university um, all the way when i came back as an elementary teacher after i decided not to go play pro football in the cfl i ended up being te a teacher and many of the kids were looking to me and saying hey we're looking for this book and i'm like it still doesn't exist so that kind of gave me the inspiration to write it. But just to explain the realities of why I would want a book like that is um, I understood at a young age, I, couldn't I didn't have the words for it, but um, we live under colonial systems and systemic racism um, embodies itself across all major institutions. So I, I felt that, but I couldn't explain it as a young person. But I felt that structural racism from education, employment, uh, housing, healthcare, uh, the homelessness um, reality in Toronto, but also in the criminal justice system. So. All these systems kind of got me to a point to take Toni Morrison's words to heart when she said, um, and, and Toni Morrison, for those who don't know, is one of the greatest writers uh, of all time. Um, she did say that if there's a book that you want to read that hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. So I wrote Butterflies in the Trenches as a blueprint to break into cycle of poverty, equipping young people to do the same as they prepare for the future work, but I also wrote it to prove that the most innovative and talented place in the world, period, 
is the hood, both locally and globally. Hmm. And I did really enjoy reading it. And one of the things that you mentioned was the fact that you ended up not pursuing um, a career in the CFL. Um, and you actually do have an endorsement from the general manager of the Toronto Argonauts, Pimbal Clements, uh, who is very well known um, here in Canada. Um, and he says in your foreword that he humbly admits that you taught him that success is not making it out. It's making your life and community better. What do you mean when you say that? Yeah, um, I think when I, I got inspired by a, a, another guy who, uh, who's from Baltimore, actually, his name is D. Watkins. And he always had that mentality. I actually got it from him because I was trying to figure out what success actually meant. Our definition for success, I think, is twisted. Usually in our neighborhoods, we say success is when you leave the neighborhood. That's what everyone tells you in society. You got to leave here to be successful. You got to leave here. But I'm still around in my neighborhood. So I had to figure out who, who else in the world is, is kind of building their community back with that new mentality that success isn't making out. It's making your life and community better. So what I was trying to get at was um, once we read widely, think critically and question everything, um, we'll, as young people, we'll be able to gain access to resources that our public education system and the government won't give us. And that's access to financial literacy, uh, real financial literacy, not the ones they're talking about that's implementing curriculum, uh, entrepreneurship business, STEM and STEAM education, mental health and wellness, all with a perspective of anti-racism and anti-oppression. They don't give us those resources, so it's hard to have the tools to break the cycle when we don't know simple things like managing money, um, how to invest, how to make it grow, um, how to have other sources of income, how to understand what the bank is really doing with their money, what the credit card company is really doing with their money. They give us credit cards, but they don't tell us how to use it. So it's one of those things where we have to do a lot of the self-education around it. So that's when I realized leaving the neighborhood, if you still don't have access to those resources, is that really success? So I kind of turned it on his head to talk about um, something I call direct service. Hmm. Direct service is where you put your money, whether you live in the neighborhood or not, let's make sure that money's going towards an organization that's directly benefiting those people who are in need. There's too many middle people, a lot of charities and nonprofit, people who don't live in the neighborhood are getting extremely wealthy, high salaries. But then when you look at where the money's actually going, there's not a strong impact in the community that, that they're working in. And I had a lot of neighborhood organizations in my community do that where they, they go to their gated community in the burbs. Um, some of them live in the beaches, bridal path, all these well-known areas. But then they come back to our neighborhood and they barely run any programs. I'm like, where's all the money? You're like a million dollar nonprofit, million dollar charity. Like where, where's the money going if we don't have programs for young people? So an example is our community center. Um, they close at four o'clock. That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> and all the research shows most stuff happens between three and six o'clock so all mm -hmm. that to say is when i say success isn't making it out it's making it better it's it's about giving kids access to resources that have been historically um, um um hidden from us but also historically we've been excluded from it but also understanding how direct service and something like skill sharing we talk about that instead of you trying to just give 20 dollars to a charity you're a graphic designer come to my neighborhood I'll, I'll, I'll teach with you. We'll teach the kids how to build a graphic design business as a side project while they're in high school. And now you're giving them skills to have an actual skill that they can monetize and they can start doing something while they're in school, make some money, help out at home, and they can learn how to save and invest. Skill sharing is what can really equip people to really change the system because skill sharing is what helped me. Someone came and said, hey, let me teach you how to code. Hey, let me teach you how to run a business. Hey, let me, let me teach you about mental health and how therapy is beneficial. So I learned mm -hmm. about all these different things. And that's what inspired me as a young person to see direct service and skill sharing is what really success isn't making it out. 
It's making your life and communion better. That's what it actually means. Mm-hmm. And, and, and building on um, what you're sharing and skill sharing and also inspiring others um, with regards to the, the potential that they can reach. Um, I know that you cycled from Vancouver to Africville and Halifax to raise funds for youth and Toronto community housing. Um, what triggered that decision and how has that experience, how has that experience impacted your life since then? Yeah, it's, it's impacted my life huge. Um, my plan was, um, I went to Queens University and my whole plan was to go pro. Um, during the draft season when I was working with my agent and interviewing with some teams, um, I had a kind of focus on like, wait, hold on. Like, why did I play football to begin with? And this explains my journey before I rode across the country where I had to think about like, I just played this sport because I was good at it. I wasn't passionate about it. It just gave me a ticket away from the neighborhood I, I didn't understand. I didn't understand they create structures in place for us to survive by any means necessary. And when I understand that, like poverty is not an individual issue and racism is not an individual issue, poverty and racism is stru- structural. So I was starting to understand this during the draft season. And I, and I kind of said, am I going to have a long-term impact with the amount of concussions I had and potentially getting me more, or would I have a longer impact if I just hang it up now? So I decided to hang up the cleats because I knew I could have a more long-term impact both in my community and around the world if I was able to do something more on a full-time basis instead of just playing football. So I ended up going back to my neighborhood um, instead of going pro. And in the community I lived in and grew up in, nothing changed. So the community organization that was there that I respected said, hey, we lost uh, 100K funding. Do you mind uh, trying to help us? Um, they looked to me as a person who can help. And that's the reason I rode across the country. It was just to help mm-hmm. this organization uh, raise funds uh, for after-school programs in uh, Scarborough, Rexdale, uh, Jane and Finch, um, and, and that was my contribution back. But in doing that, I wasn't able only to raise hundred K across Canada in 60 days while I was cycling. I got to speak in every city about systemic racism, how it, how it manifests across all institutions and how it actually impacts the lives of young people, um, uh, newcomers, um, parents who are working multiple jobs, uh, people who are inmates, curb servers, OGs. Like I just explained how all the people that society demonizes are the actual people that help me get to where I am. And these people have so much talent, they just need the right platforms and the right bridge to use that those transferable skills and talent and competencies in another area. So that was kind of my main mission of the ride. And it really changed me because it gave me time to think. Mm-hmm. Most of my life has been high, high pace in, in those communities when you live in a disenfranchised community, especially in the hood, anywhere in North America. And a lot of the, the hoods in Canada, a lot of people don't know. But my book plants people in a, a bigger socio-political reality so mm-hmm. they can understand that wait, is he talking about Canada or America? Mm. So they're starting to realize our hoods here are like the American hoods. Mm. Obviously, some things look a bit different, but at the core of it, the same stuff is happening here. So I think that was kind of my main mission of, of riding across the country, and it gave me time to think mm. on the bus, where I never had a time to think throughout my life because I've always been busy. And uh, that's probably why I remember we talked about this briefly. The book is written in the same way it happened. While I was cycling across the country from Vancouver to Halifax, which is how the book is written, I finished in Africville, Nova Scotia. I plant readers back and forth between the ride and my life. Mm-hmm. So I go from the present day ride back into the past when I was a kid. And I go back and forth all across the country because all those traumatic memories were seeping into my mind as I was cycling against my will because I was so tired. Mm-hmm. I was so tired and I couldn't stop thinking. Mm-hmm. And then the end of the book is beautiful because it talks about other butterflies in the trenches around the world and around Toronto who also show that 
there's innovation in every hood, locally and globally. Sounds good. I want to focus on this chapter next because I yeah. think it really ties in well into um, what you were just mentioning. Knock, knock, who's there? Um, it's, a, it's a game kids play, but um, it has a lot more uh, meaning and substance um, in, in you know, the experience that you're describing in that chapter. Would you mind sharing that story and, and yeah. what your takeaway is from that experience? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you the overview. Don't bore them with the story because got to read it. <laughs> but okay. no, um, I think that story, like knock, knock, who's there is a game, mm -hmm. right? But that chapter is about when police raided my house mm -hmm. when I was a child. So it's kind of showing that the reason I had that nuance, you'll understand based on the story, mm -hmm. what actually happened, why I called it that. Mm -hmm. But uh, basically the police raided my house uh, when I was a young kid. Um, it was just me and my mom home. My, old, my older brothers were about in middle school. Um, one was just starting grade nine. Uh, they're at their friend's house, just had a sleepover. My dad was at work. And my work, my parents are newcomers from Guyana, right? So they worked with multiple factory jobs um, to provide. So uh, my mom just came home from a night shift and it's just a scene of the police raiding my house and the kind of visceral reaction for a mom who just came home from night shift is in the kitchen making tea and then I'm actually sleeping. So it's a reaction of me waking up and how traumatic the experience is for a young child. And I try to plant readers in a, the point of view perspective of, a, of, a, of, a, of an innocent child that's in a situation that explains why in human years we're seven, but then in block years we're 21. We're exposed to so much at a young age that um, we shouldn't see, we lose a lot of that, um, a lot of kids lose their, um, their, uh, their child-like nature because we don't have that opportunity just to be a kid based on what we're exposed to, right? So the police raided my house, um, but after they raided the house, the house was a mess, it looked like a tornado hit it, and um, all they said was, uh, they didn't really have a warrant. Um, all they said, it, they got intel that it was the wrong house. But this is the reality of what happens when, when you're black and in Canada, not only black and in America. Um, so there, there's been multiple police raids all across my community. But a key part of that story is I highlight how traumatic the experience was for me. So you understand the post-traumatic stress disorder that I had as a, as a young kid living with PTSD, but he also understands the visceral reaction to the officer who I, I recognized in my house. So he was an officer who was known for um, assaulting, stepping on necks of young, literally stepping on necks of young people in our neighborhood, beating up guys in alleys, throwing guys out of police cars, like all because they could, because the reality is they're not going to really listen to our stories in court system. Mm -hmm. This sounds American, but it's here. So it was one of those realities where I wanted to highlight that story to show that once you read that story, and you understand the visceral reaction and the kind of tra trauma it has on a young child and a mother, you also understand why I had data throughout the book. So the book is actually a series of stories, data, and essays. Mm -hmm. A lot of the stories kind of humanize a neighborhood and a people in a community from dealers and, and drug dealers, inmates, and, and people who work multiple jobs. My stories humanize all the people who are demonized by society, but the essays and the data show you the socio-political reality of how Canada and Toronto more specifically, the way they treat black and indigenous life and, 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 and lives of poor people, it shows that they think it's a game. That's why I called it knock knock who's there is because the way that they handle our communities, they don't treat us like humans. The way that they operate, even if you just look at our data, let's not even talk about how they operate by physically, just based on the data in the book, you see over the course of 20 years, it just shows that what's most important to the city of Toronto and to Canada more broadly is policing. They try to solve poverty. They try to solve crime with policing. The issue with that is the roots of those things isn't solved. All the data shows across North America, across the world, 
we need to eradicate poverty. If you eradicate poverty, we're able to increase better outcomes in education and employment where people won't have to survive by any means to get into crime. So that's what, where, where my reality was to kind of put, keep people off guard where they read knock knock who's there. And then the first sentence, literally you realize you're in the middle of a police raid. So really there's kind of like a, is it a, it's like a contradiction in itself. It's like, is it oxymoron is the term? Hmm. I think it's oxymoron. Is it oxymoron? What's the word? I'm trying to think of the term, but it's a term where they're like, oh, like it's like direct opposites. Mm-hmm. All that to say is that was the reality of, of my community. And then I also highlight on a page there, a hundred uh, indigenous and, and black people in Canada that were murdered by police and they're recent. Mm. So just to highlight that the, uh, Canada is America. Mm. I find it um, really interesting and in that um, the interactions that we've had so far, um, you, the way you approach things is that you, you calculate and strategize and, but once you're ready to make a move on a specific initiative, whether it's career-wise, whether it's the launch of the book, whether it's some other initiative, it's once you put all the pieces together, then you make the move, then you start talking about it, um, not before. Whereas a lot of people who come from you know, other points of view, they end up um, you know, talking about what they're doing every day. And, uh, and, and, and what ends up happening is sometimes whatever it is that they're planning doesn't pan out. And uh, they end up not looking that great, whether that has to do with how they are mapping out their career or it has to do with another aspect of their life. And on page 22 of your book, um, you quote uh, Tupac Shakur and you say, if you let a person talk long enough, you'll hear their true intentions. Listen twice, speak once. Um, and, and, you know, I've seen you really put that into practice on many occasions. Can you talk about, you know, why you approach things that way and how it has benefited you to, to, uh, to listen twice and speak once? Yeah. Um, anything that I'm successful at today, both in the, the worldly sense of success or basically my, my version of success is making my life and my community better. Anything I've been successful at has been drawn back to my community. You can't live in those communities and talk a lot. People who talk a lot get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> That's just how it works. You, you talk too much. Respect is earned. It's not given. And you got to, when you move to a new neighborhood, even kids know this. If you've been in the hood long enough, as a young child, you, you have to figure out who's who's and what's what, how things operate, who, like how the system looks, who, what are the relationships, what are the partnerships. You don't learn that by talking to people. You learn that by observing. Mm-hmm. So, by, I think in the book, I talk a lot about like when I moved to a new neighborhood, how, how I was the real neighborhood watch where mm-hmm. kids know who's coming in and out of the block, how long they've been there, if they've been there before, who their relatives are. We actually have community ties. I always say that in my neighborhood, um, we have a social emotional connection to people. Mm-hmm. People who live in more affluent communities, uh, uh, wealthier communities and specifically white communities and then the residential neighborhoods they live in, they don't have the same social political, social emotional connection to people. They have a more social, emotional connection to position in society. So I always argue, especially in the neighborhoods that I've been in, I've been in both circles. Um, my best sense of community and my best sense of being a, a teacher and learning has been in my neighborhood because that's the best community I actually ever had. Though we had all, all these other stuff going on, in that community, I learned 
that the best things could happen when you observe and you don't talk a lot. Because mm. um, you want to you play chess, not checkers, right? Mm-hmm. And I learned that a lot from, you see Nipsey Hussle's book there. Mm-hmm. But Nipsey Hussle is the, he's the best example of how to elevate the social and economic fabric of a disenfranchised community in a grassroots way that empowers other people to also break the cycle and prepare for the future work. And he bridges the gap between the streets and Silicon Valley. Mm. His example is he's a former gang member. Um, he still was a, he's still connected to the gang throughout his whole life, but he was able to graduate from the gang life in the sense that though he was still social, emotionally connected to his, his gang and his people, he was actually started 25 plus businesses, hired his own XYZ, XYZ. But he even said he learned his best from being a listener and a learner first. When he dropped out of high school, he read a lot of books, went to a lot of conferences, talked to a lot of people. He was just soaking in information for years and years and years. And I followed his example um, even before I knew who he was as a young person. Anything you want to accomplish, figure out what the destination is and then reverse engineer it. You putting in that work to reverse engineer it, you map out an exact plan of how you could accomplish everything. So anything I did, whether it was a book, a ride across the country, uh, about to go pro as a football player, um, to get to university, um, to start a coding robotics school, to anything I've done, I figured out what the end goal was. And I did enough research and both in online, meeting people, networking, um, exposing myself to new content, new places, new environments, new communities. I made a list. This is the goal that I made a list all the way down. to what I have to do today to get to this step, then say if I, if say if, I don't know, uh, throughout my life, a lot of people have passed away or I lost my job or our business wasn't doing well as an entrepreneur or, or my parents got sick, whatever happened. I don't have to be emotional about it. I made the plan. I just go back to the, the plan and say, okay, where do I left off? I feel like a lot of people don't reverse engineer what their end goal is. Mm. They don't do the Because if they don't reverse engineer the end goal is, you're more swayed by what people's opinion of what you're doing is. Mm. When people say, I wrote, it took three and a half years to write my book. I didn't really announce it to the last six months before the book was really out um, because I was doing the work. Because I, I realized when you share it with people, especially your close people, they're good. But when you share it with the wrong person, they'll say stuff like, oh, you can't write a book. Like, it won't go anywhere. Or you won't get pressed. You're an indie author. You won't get pressed. But I got pressed every, from every news station. So it's like one of those things where people project their own beliefs onto your own journey. And I realized my main thing with listening, uh, listen twice, speak once, is understanding that the power is in observation and listening. That's where you get true power. And then the ultimate power is understanding that collaboration is what gets you forward in life. Mm. Not doing the, just climb the corporate ladder. I'm just going to screw up something for someone just to step on their neck to climb. It's a Uh different mentality. So that's what I mean by listen twice, Mm. uh, speak once. Mm. And I think a, a great segue into our final question. Um, um, now, if you were talking right now with a young person who is in a um, difficult environment, social, economically, and, um, and you think of the, the concept of um, a butterfly in the trenches or um, a rose growing out of concrete, as Tupac Shakur would say, how, you know, what are some additional thoughts that you might have in terms of resources or inspiration that they might be able to get in order for them to, um, to, to identify what their goals should be and how to go about achieving them. Do you have any additional thoughts on 
um, something that they could find useful? Yeah, so I think with a lot of young people, sometimes uh, we're very quick to steer people to resources. I, I, I tend to steer people to resources second. Mm. I like to have just the upfront conversation. That's why a lot of my book, it talks about a very open story of like my mental health issues throughout my life, uh, living with PTSD, battling depression and anxiety over the course of my life. Because you can't really survive in, in situations where there's drive-bys, suicides and, and police raids and, and police just, you know, rushing the neighborhood 40 deep, like, and 40 deep just means a group of 40 officers. Like, you you have a heightened sense of, like, just being on edge. Mm. You know what I mean? <laughs> so me being upfront and honest about those things is more important because if you give if you give people the, the tools to be like, oh, do this for finances, uh, mm. learn about a credit card, learn about a bank, your, your credit card company makes more money based on more people being in debt. They won't tell you that. They won't tell you how to use it. Um, the bank... Uh, if you if we all were to do a bank run today, they get our money. Our money's not there. They'll tell you to come back in five days. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the bank's making ten times our money, and and it doesn't control for inflation because we're actually losing money having your bank money to sit in the bank because the, the percentage that inflation is rising, you're seeing it is losing value. There's a lot of other stuff happening. Kids can learn that. Kids can learn about STEM and STEAM education. So science, tech, engineering, math, science, tech, engineering, arts, and math. They can learn about um, the digital economy, entrepreneurship, business. Everyone talks about those things, but people aren't talking about mental health. If, if we're not focusing on the mental health first, we can't even talk about those things because you have to understand the reality. Like, I, if you know how people, I had a friend who, who had a whole bunch of people pass away in, in, in his uh, house, so they just moved. Why? Because they owned the home. They just sold it and bought another house somewhere else. You live in a community where you can't leave. <laughs> so people are dying on every street corner. So in many ways, your neighborhood sometimes feel great, but in many ways, your neighborhood's a graveyard. Mm. So, you know, so there's, so there's like a, it's, you're just being in your community, walking by those spaces every day because you can't afford to leave. That in itself is traumatic. It's re-triggering. It's, it's basically like um, mm. you're reliving trauma over and over and over again, but there's no resources for you. School doesn't give you resources for mental health. Therapy is not an accessible price. Though we have healthcare in Canada, uh, mental health services is not part of it. Even we can talk about dental stuff too. That's not part of it as well. But mental health as a core, that's not part of it. So we don't have the tools and, and the ecosystem. So now there's stuff popping up. That's how I really talk about young people is caring for yourself first and focusing on your mental health. It only opens up your, your, your point of view and your, and your capacity to be able to learn other stuff like finances and, and STEM and, and try to teach yourself or put yourself in environments to learn that kind of stuff. Uh, I say focusing on your core mental health first it is a pre, is a is a is a requirement hmm. that should be ongoing in order to accomplish those things. So I always tell young people like, um, there's very few people in this in this world that will care about you, especially the people coming from neighborhoods like mine. So I always say like these people we we can't treat them like dirt. We got to show some love and 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 we got to surround ourselves with those kind of people. Like I'm around my youth hit me up um, because I actually care about them, right? And it doesn't matter if they. Uh, speak my language but fuck up in life or something or something not going well they know they can come back and like i'll help them out in some way um and 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 support and and that's kind of like my focus right like we always talk about oh just give them just bring in someone with a suit and tie to teach them finances it doesn't work that way one you're not from the neighborhood so right when you show up it's like you don't even know how to speak the language to connect with young people i'm a bridge to kind of like the silicon valley vibe and the business vibe to the streets because i show kids how to use our language to understand that world. And I show this world how to understand that world, to understand all the stuff we praise in the in the world, in the global innovation economy and business and entrepreneurship. Our kids have the same skills in the hood. 
black and indigenous people all around the world have that in their heads and a lot of the kids in the community. So mm. um, all that to say is when I think of the rose that grow the concrete, we need to think about the butterfly in the trenches concept. Both of those things sound very beautiful. So what's more connected to beauty, caring for people, mm. financial literacy, all those tools and stuff that can help people break out of cycle poverty to improve their social economic position in society, to help them participate in the marketplace. Mm. That isn't what the rose and the butterflies represent. The rose and the butterflies is actually the people. Mm. You need to care for the people. And I remember this quote by Fred Hampton. like, uh, don't forget that uh, where there's people, there's power. Mm. So, so that's where my focus is usually on is try to, this is supposed to mobilize the community to really invest in one another mm. to help improve e each individual life and help out someone next door to them. Um, so that, that's kind of the rose in the concrete. Wow. Thank you I so much, Curtis. Later, but we can have some questions. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Curtis. This was such a meaningful conversation. I really appreciate it. So how can someone get a copy of Butterflies in the Trenches and follow some of your other work? Yeah. So uh, Butterflies in the Trenches is exclusively only available on my website. So it's uh, curtiscarmichael.ca. Um, you can follow me on all socials at Curtis Carmike, like the mic, Curtis Carmike, at Curtis Carmike. But yeah, curtiscarmichael.ca has a book. Uh, you can order it through there. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, you can sign up for the app waitlist as well. So we'll at launch the app uh, soon after because the book just launched. Uh, but yeah, you can get it there as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, being our guest on the Career Planning Show, Curtis. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and share the Career Planning Show with a friend. For more resources and to ask your career development questions, visit rascanu.com forward slash the career planning show.